Hey guys, what is up? Welcome to episode number eight of Being Famous Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Cliff. I appreciate you guys checking me out and continuing to support the podcast. If it's your first time listening, welcome and thank you. Nice to have you. All episodes can be heard on my webpage at beingfamouspodcast.com. Facebook and Instagram are at beingfamouspodcast. I encourage you to like and follow my social media platforms as I inform you of upcoming guests, give away free stuff, and keep you updated on all the latest podcast news. If there's someone you would like to see featured on the podcast, shoot me an email, guys. Very easy. Info at beingfamouspodcast.com. If you're on my webpage and listening to the podcast, please leave me a comment. That would be greatly appreciated as I welcome all feedback. Before we get on with episode number eight, one last thing to take care of, guys. I want to thank my buddy, Maggie Carnes, out in Los Angeles, California, who works in artist management for putting me in contact with this gentleman. Now, on with the podcast. If you've listened to previous episodes, you know I'm a fan of not only the 80s, but 80s music as well. Consider the one-hit wonder. This was one of my favorite 80s songs from back in the day, and a song I still currently spin from time to time. It's just that good. Released in 1988 and featured in the 2004 movie Napoleon Dynamite, I'm talking about The Promise. Let's welcome to the podcast founding member and lead vocalist of the group, When in Rome. His name is Clive Farrington. Clive, thanks for coming on the podcast. Welcome to the show. Hey, Cliff. Thanks for having me on the podcast. No, man. Thank you. I appreciate you taking time out of your day to come on the show. Where are you calling from, Clive? I'm in Orange County, a place called Placentia, right near, um, well, it's by Yorba Linda. We're on the border of Yorba Linda, you know, Richard Nixon's birthplace, his uh, places up the road, the library and everything else. Very nice. The people that listen to the podcast know that I love Southern California. Clive, how far are you from Laguna Beach? Um, it's about 20, 30 miles. Okay. Very nice. Not too far. Are you in Laguna Beach? No, I'm not in Laguna Beach. I wish I was. Uh, I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina, where it's about a thousand degrees, man. <laughs> yeah, we love Laguna Beach. Me and the wife, we go shopping there. It's fantastic. I love it. Yeah, man. Definitely a cool spot. How long have you been in Southern California? Um, I moved here in 2012, of course, after the Napoleon Dynamite thing in 2004 when it was... Uh, when the song became successful again, I, we did, it, it took me a few years to get because I was I was actually already in work. Um, I was I was working for a living at that point. At, uh, well, if you could call working for a living, I guess you know being in a band and working for a record label and being signed to a record label is some kind of work. But I actually had to get a proper job in the meantime. But when we'd lost the record deal and everything else, so um, two thousand four brought us the uh, attention again. So. 2012 I decided to move out here we should have done it in two th- in the 80s really when we had the hit because of course America is the only place that we had the hit gotcha and of course we'll talk about Napoleon Dynamite in a little bit and also obviously uh the song The Promise where were you living Clive prior to uh California in Altrincham Cheshire where exactly is that in uh, South Manchester. Nice. Some good bands come out of Manchester, Clive. Yeah, so that, that kind of it disassociates us from uh, all the, the other Manchester bands, if you like. You know, pure Manchester bands would say that they were from the Manchester postcode, M1 up to M, whatever it is. Uh, but I was I lived in the uh, the Warrington postcode, which is South Manchester. It's just, uh, it's, it's Cheshire rather than Lancashire. Manchester is Lancashire, I'm Cheshire. So, uh we kind of have a bit of rivalry as well. So whenever you see a history of Manchester bands, you'll never see when in Rome on it because we're actually out of the postcode. We just missed it by a 
because Withenshaw, the next town to us, is actually Manchester. It's where Slaughter and the Dogs come from. It's where uh, Paul Young from Mike and the Man Can It come from. It's where Morrissey comes from. It's, uh, you know, the, the the town next door to me is, is pretty uh, influential as far as uh, music's concerned. Yeah, very cool. There's a few bands that I want to ask you about that are from Manchester. Uh, I want to get your opinion on those bands. I'll ask you about those a little bit later on. Clive, how did you get involved in music? Um, well, I was five years of age and I got a drum kit for Christmas. So I was into drums for a while. I was, uh, but weirdly enough, I was, I never played drums in a band. I, uh, I played drums for the school band, but never in a band, you know, you know, on the, uh, the pop circuit, if you like. Um, not that I didn't get a chance to, I, I, I don't know. I think at that time I didn't really, really want to get into, uh, to, play, to playing in bands. I just wanted to learn how to do, to, to play drums, if you like. Okay, cool. So you start playing drums at a young age, then you played in your school band. As you move on with life, Clive, how did the first band you joined come to be? Um, So I was working at um, an engineering factory and the foreman at the engineering factory was looking for a bass player for his band because his his bass player was ill. So um, he was walking around the factory floor and asking people and he asked me, he says, would you play bass for us? Can you play bass? And I said, no, I'm a drummer. And I knew they had a really good drummer, Graham Mather. They, had, they, they already had a really great drummer, um, but they were looking for a bass player. So he was, I said, I'm sorry, I don't play bass. So he carried on walking around. And then he came to me last again. Everybody was saying, no, they couldn't, blah, blah, blah. Came to me as a last resort again. He says, are you sure you don't want to do it? I said, come on then. You know, if you're not, if you're short of somebody, I'll, I'll, I'll try and do something. So in my lunch hour, I went to Woolworths and bought myself an Epiphone copy semi-acoustic guitar, uh, bass guitar. And um, I got them to transpose all the, the, the songs into E, A, D, or G, so open strings. I didn't have to do anything with my left hand. Everything was open string. So uh, that, I learned to play bass then. And then, of course, the jam came along and Bruce Foxton playing the Rickenbacker and stuff that influenced me to carry on playing bass. So I bought myself a Rickenbacker um 4001 stereo bass and learned to play that and the the beauty of that was i actually used it properly because that's a stereo bass and a, a lot of players don't use it as a stereo uh guitar what i did is i split the feed into two separate amplifiers one either side of the stage so i had bass i actually had a bass in the middle and, and then a, a trebly um amplifier on the right hand side so it was kind of given as a stereo um tone field if you like and uh so i I, I, I create. I, I made this special cable that allowed me to feed to two separate amps and stuff. So I experimented with the bass, and I, I, I used to watch television with the bass in my hand without it plugged in and stuff, and so I could feel the vibration and get to know, know the instrument and stuff. So I came a little bit. I became a little bit proficient on the bass, but I get very bored. I get bored very. I'll take the, the other way around. I get bored very very quickly. So um, I. Um, so how old are you at this time? Uh, I would say I'd already done my apprenticeship from 17 to 21. Um, so I would say 22, 23 when I started re- in my first, you, you know, in, in the first, it was a cover band that I joined playing bass. Uh, so, so I'd say about 23, 24. And so, so it took then another six or seven years to actually get into the, the, the wedding Rome uh, scenario, if you like. Sure. And we'll get into the uh, whole win in Rome story here in just a bit, Clive. But how many bands were you in prior to win in Rome? Um, well, I was in a few different bands and I'd, I'd, I'd auditioned for a few bands as well that I'd um, 
I've, I've, you know, playing bass, and uh, you know, when when I don't something doesn't appeal to me straight away, I'm I'm, I'm I kind of shy away from it. So I auditioned for loads and loads of different bands, but I was in this band called Atlantis, which was the one that I joined from the the engineering factory, if you like, and um, we played the working men's clubs and uh, doing cover numbers. So I was kind of learning my trade. It was like my apprenticeship. I was listening, you know, playing other people's music and learning how, how to formulate a song, if you like. And um, yeah, yeah, we got kicked out of a few places. Well, af- after that, we I, I actually formed a band called Bow Leisure with a guy called Dave Powell, and I was writing with Dave, on, and um, we did our own stuff. There was, that was the first time. I would say that was 26, 27. I was 26 or 27 when I started uh, writing with a ba- uh, the band called Beau Leisure and playing live. But we stayed on the same circuit as the band, that, as the cover band. So that we were playing the working men's clubs with a, a band that was playing their own original music. And it, it got us into trouble quite a bit because uh, people in on that circuit didn't really want to hear new songs. They wanted to hear standard co- co- so they could dance and stuff. Um, so we, it, it was a really, really good apprenticeship that we had because um, you know that it, it's, it's like gold, really, being knowing how to um, handle an audience that isn't quite reactive to your um, your material, if you like. How long was Bo Leisure together? Um, I'd say Bo Leisure were about together for about three years. It must have been because it was twenty six up to about thirty, um, uh, and then of course the, the the when in Rome thing came just just after that. Did Bo Leisure make any kind of noise? Yeah, we yeah we 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 um we had a single released on Pinnacle, which was a distribution label in uh, in the UK, um, a song called American Beat, um, and it's a really good song. I actually do it live now on my solo uh, shows because I do solo shows as well as the. Uh, the Farrington and Mann shows, as it were. Of course, we can't call ourselves when in Rome. Yeah, pretty crazy. And we'll talk about some of that legal stuff in just a bit yeah, live. Yeah. Uh, but I'm guessing this is what happens. Bo Leisure comes to an end, and this is the beginning of when in Rome. Is that correct? Yes. So uh, end of Bo Leisure, you know, like every most other bands, Bo Leisure ended by uh, we, we just one night we just decided to do it. We, you know, we didn't want to do it anymore. And uh, But I carried it on for a little bit. I actually um, carried the name on, uh, the, the Bo Leisure name with a new lineup. And this is how When in Rome came about because my uh, my mum and dad loved to go and see bands as well, separate from me. They were, they were kind of... Uh, real um they're really into going out to see bands and stuff so they'd come home one night and they'd been to a place and uh place called northwich in cheshire which is about 10 15 miles away from where i was born um and they came back i was looking for a um a singer and a keyboard player for bow leisure to replace the two guys that had just left um so mum and dad came back enthusing about two these two guys and one was mike not all who became our keyboard player in When in Rome and uh, a guy called Andy Connell. Now, this is where it gets a bit tricky because in Wikipedia, it says that Andy Connell was part of When in Rome. He was actually Bo Leisure and he went off to do his own stuff. Only Mike and I stayed together to uh, form. We, we weren't actually called When in Rome at that time. We just kind of disbanded Bo Leisure. We were writing music together without a name and stuff. So, um, And we knew Andrew as well at this time. We'd, we'd met Andrew because Andrew, Andrew used to open for us as a, as a poet. He used to come on before Bow Leisure and, and uh, recite uh, like political poems and stuff, and uh, uh, it's, uh, so that's how we got to, to know Andrew and stuff. And, uh, and and of course, Andrew then became. Well, we were looking for a writer, but we were looking for a lyricist. 
So uh, we, we asked Andrew to join us. Um, so, and, uh, and as luck would have it, Andrew was moving to London. As, and as everybody knows, London is a Hollywood of, of the UK. It's where everything happens, where films happen. It's where the record industry happens. And uh, so at the same time as we were forming, before we'd even got the name, Andrew had decided to move down to London. And we'd already got a demo of The Promise. We'd already... I'd. Um, the weird thing about the promise is that we we never wrote the, the lyrics down. Uh, of course, the lyrics are written down now, but I sang the uh, the lyrics directly into a cassette recorder. They just came straight from my head, and we kept those lyrics that I sang. Um, so it was, if you need a friend, don't look to a stranger, blah, 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 all the way up to the chorus, um, uh, and I sang that into a cassette. Uh, he had So Andrew had... This very that it was perfect. It was a perfect storm, really. As we'd just finished this demo of just one verse and a chorus, Andrew was moving down to London. So he moved down to London. We kind of completed that little demo off and sent it down to him. Uh, and uh, of course, the rest is history. He got the record deal off a verse and a chorus. Very cool story. So, who gets the writing credit for the promise? All of us. We we were a very diplomatic band, you know. We we right from the beginning we said. I mean, the main songwriters right from the beginning was uh, were Mike and I. You know, we were writing together. We we, we kind of we were like brothers. We we had a little studio at my mum and dad's house, and we used to um, write songs in there. And most days, most nights, you know, when whenever we could get in there, we'd be kind of uh, experimenting experimenting with stuff. But we decided right from the beginning that whoever wrote. We, you know, we sat down together and uh, when we formed the band properly, uh, we said that whoever writes whatever, we're going to split the royalties three ways because we saw, uh, you know, we foresaw that there might be a problem later down the line if if we'd have said, oh, I wrote this part, so you don't get this part, blah, blah, blah. So we decided to be very diplomatic and whoever wrote whatever um, got a third writing royalties. But we kind of... You know, it worked out for us. In a, it wasn't like I was writing everything, and or Mike was writing everything, and Andrew was writing everything, and we were sharing it. We actually did write in that way. So I'd write. I, Mike had come up with a little melody on his on the piano. I'd come up with a, a lyrical or a vocal melody <clears throat> um, and a lyric, and then we'd um, hand it off to andrew and that's the way we wrote all the songs so he'd come up with the next part so he'd be inspired by what all what was already recorded and come up with uh what we would say what i would say were blinding um blinding verses to match um to match the original um idea that we had and uh, it always worked out it worked out with heaven knows wide wide see all of those songs uh, that weren't quite as big a hit as The Promise were written in the same format. So uh, Mike and I would come up with the basic formula and Mike, uh, sorry, Andrew would then finish it off. That's cool. So you guys record this demo, right? You get it to Andrew. Clive, when you're done recording the demo, are you thinking to yourself, wow, we really have something here. This could be a hit. What was going through your mind at that time? Yeah. It's it's weird, and of course we've not had it since. Apart from over the past couple of weeks, obviously because of this downtime that we've got now, and we've got plenty of time. I'm spending a lot of time in the studio, and uh, I've hit upon an idea that it's giving me the same feeling as the promise. But we we did know, <clears throat> going back to your question, that I think it's uh, we we 
we knew that there was something there. I knew there was something there as soon as I sang the first verse and the chorus. Having not had a, a hit before, I didn't know what a hit felt like, but it, it, it kind of uh, organically felt like a like a hit. Um, or, or not quite, and that's not really the word. It, it just felt like a great song. You know, it just felt like a great idea. And, and, it, and uh, we knew it kind of had some kind of a chance. That's really cool. So Andrew has the tape. Um, explain to me, Clive, how the deal with the record label came to be. So Andrew got the deal on the verse, verse and the chorus. Before he'd written the second verse, he got the deal on that. There was a place called Hort, not Horts. I met Andrew in Horts in Manchester, but there's a place called Groucho's in London where all the A&R guys used to hang out. So, um, of course, Andrew frequented that place and he always had the cassette in his pocket. Uh, and as luck would have it, one of the A&R guys who worked for Electra uh, gave him a ride home one night. And in the, of course, back in the 80s, uh, every car had a cassette player in it. So he, he had the little cassette that recorded on the Tascam that we'd sent down to him with the first verse and the chorus on it, played it to this A&R guy from Electra. And he was very, very interested. Wait, of course, then we signed to Electra. Um, and, uh, okay. So that's pretty cool. So, Andrew is in the car with this A&R guy. He plays the demo of The Promise. Do you know the backstory to that, Clive? Did the A&R guy sign you guys right then and there? Do you know how all of that transpired? I think he probably slept on it. I think they probably, I I, I don't know the total story because I wasn't there with Andrew, but the story is that he um, played it to the guy and, and, and of course, he gave it the nod of approval and he says, I really, really like this. Uh, didn't make the deal right then in the car, dropped Andrew off. And then, of course, it was in his head all night. Andrew got the call the day after, you know, would you like to sign to Electra? So we we actually signed. They'd not heard, although there was a lot of stuff going on. Electra paid for us to do demos then for the album. Of course, we needed an album. We only had that, the promise at the time. So we had to write an, an album around it. We had some very basic ideas with, uh, for Wide Wide, uh, not even for Wide Wide Sea, because they were written with, that's a later story. But we, uh, of course, uh, Electra then paid for us to do demos at a place called Cavalier in Stockport and uh, um, Strawberry Studios, where I'm Not In Love was recorded by 10CC. Um, so, so a lot of history, you know, we were, we were using uh, really, really great studios for demoing and stuff. So we did lots of demos. Electra paid for lots of demos, uh, you know, to go towards the album. And for whatever reason, Electra decided to close their offices in uh, London. And so we couldn't deal with the time difference. So we we decided that we wanted to get out of the Electra deal because we couldn't deal with the, as I said, the time difference. And um, as luck would have it, um, we we decided to we took a chance. Really, it was a bit of a Sex Pistols thing. Really, we did. We it was us that wanted to get out of the record deal, but not, but amicably. It was a bit different than the Sex Pistols because Sex Pistols got out of their deal unamicably, if there is a word. But we 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 kind of had a word with the record company. So we. It's not working because of the time difference, blah, blah, blah. And Electra were really, really very good. And thankfully, Mick Clark at 10 Records, which is a division of Virgin Records, was interested from the first time because we did showcases and stuff with the, the live showcases with the band to, you know, for, for A&R people. Uh, and Mick Clark from 10 Records had seen us and was interested to sign us. So thankfully, Virgin agreed to pay Electra off, if you like, pay, pay uh, or, or buy out our deal. So then we signed to Virgin Records, and of course that became because it was a hit in, uh, it became a hit in America. Uh, I mean that's a story in itself, you know the way the the, the way it be- 
the way it became a hit. So I don't know whether you want to go into that now, but it's... Uh, yes, I definitely want to talk about that. And I know the listeners want to hear that story as well. But um, let's recap real quick, Clive. You said a lot there. So for the listeners that might not be following you, and I only know this from doing research on you guys, when you refer to the time difference, basically what you're referring to, as you mentioned, Electra shut down their London offices. However, they still had a West Coast presence in the United States, in California. So there you go. There's your time difference. You guys are in the UK. They're in LA. That's an eight-hour time difference. So you guys are having difficulties dealing with the label back and forth because of the time difference. But I want to talk about the deal real quick, Clive. Um, prior to when in Rome, you had been in several bands. You finally get this deal. What is your mindset at that point in time? I mean, are you just beyond excited? Well, you say, you know what I say. It's very, very. It's you don't know. You really don't know what to think because it's a first record deal. You know, I mean, it's not a George Michael thing where George Michael can go from one record deal to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Of course, we thought we we kind of knew we were very, very, uh, you know, lucky, and we were in the place. But I think it was all down to us creating the look and Andrew going down to London and, and everything else. But yeah, we were, we were over the moon with, uh, with the, with the situation, especially when Virgin came in and said, you know, we're still interested uh, and we will look after Electra and everything was done very amicably. We didn't fall out with anybody, you know, the record, we were still friends with all the record people and record company people. Um, but, and then of course it, it becomes a hit in, in America. And of course, Virgin, America takeover then. Yeah, that's pretty amazing that you guys are able to leave Electra amicably because whenever you hear about bands leaving a label or the label dropping the band, it always seems to get really messy. But like you said, Clive, Virgin now has you guys. They have the promise. It becomes a hit. Talk to me about it. How does it happen? Is it that Virgin just throws a ton of promotion behind it and they just really push it? Tell me how the promise becomes a hit in the United States of America? Well, the way it happened was, and again, it was a perfect storm. At the, at the time we'd written it, or with the time we'd done this signing to Virgin, uh, they decided to um, make a 12-inch. So the first release of The Promise was 12. It was a 12-inch record. Okay. Um, and it, it was very, very rare to have a, a single on 12-inch at that time. You know, I mean... Blue Monday New Order were probably the only other band that had as big a hit with a, with a 12-inch record, if you like. So um, at the very same time that we'd released this in the UK, uh, Mike, our keyboard player's cousin, was moving to San Francisco to work. Not in, the, not in anything to do with music or radio or anything. I think it was engineering or whatever he was doing. Nothing to do with the music. But we gave him a 12-inch record to take with him to San Francisco. And he knew nothing of radio stations. But he just, for whatever he did, he managed to bump into the biggest radio station on the West Coast at the time. It was Live 105. So he took the, it was at the time when you could actually walk into a rec, radio station. Now you can't get through security. You've got, you've got to go through all the loops and hoops and, and everything else. So um, he manages to get into this radio station, uh, manages to get the DJ to come to the re reception. He says, I've got a, rec a record here from a Manchester band from the UK. Uh, you might want to listen to this. It's an exclusive. You're the only station that's got this 12-inch. Nice. 
And uh, so he handed it over to the DJ. DJ started playing it. And as you know, the difference between, uh, you, you might know this already, but in the UK, you have to sell records to get up the charts. In America, you, it's radio play that gets you up the charts. So the station started playing, Live 105 started playing The Promise. And then from there on, it went like wildfire. You know, every radio station wanted to play it and wanted a piece of it and everything else. So um, we were very, very lucky. But I think we made our, our own luck by having somebody going directly to a radio station to play. I don't think, if that had not happened, it may not have been a hit. It might have been one of those hits that, great song, but not pushed properly. With The Promise, yeah, we, we, we kind of knew it was a great song um, <clears throat> or a great idea. Uh, but it was actually those little those things that we we did to make it happen that made it happen. That's a great story, man. Give Mike the keyboard player's cousin twenty <laughs> percent for that. That's that's fantastic. So this all happened right around nineteen eighty eight. Is that correct, Clive? Yeah, uh, I, I think we got the deal in ninety. It was very very quick the way it happened. I think we got the deal in eighty seven. It was released in eighty eight and then became a hit, a, a bigger hit in eighty nine. It was number one on the dance chart and number 11 on the major chart in the US. Wow, man, very cool. Number 11, Clive, Yeah, on the uh, on the top 40. Now that's something to be excited about. Yes. Well, I mean, when, when you're talking about backflips, when you look at the Billboard chart from that time, you've got Madonna behind you, you've got Michael Jackson in the same chart, you know, and we're actually above these people, you know, in that, that you two were at about 22 or something like that. And so, you know, for a, a Manchester band, an Altrincham, South Manchester band, it was a it was a very, very big thing. Yeah, man, that's really cool. So explain how this works, Clive. The song is obviously gaining lots of traction in America. You guys are back in the UK. Is there any way that you personally can track the song and see what kind of, I don't know, see what kind of traction that it's actually gaining and what type of success it has? Or is that pretty much done through the label? Um, and them relaying that information back to you. How does that work? Well, but yeah, I mean, being 5,000 miles away, this was all happening while we're 5,000 miles away, of course. We didn't know. Of course, they, we were thrown on two tours of America. We went to Virgin, we met the Virgin Record people. Of course, when we went into the, the Virgin offices in uh, Hollywood, first word they said to us was, You've only got one record on your album, one hit record on your album. You need to do three more. So, from there, we, we recorded three more songs with Richard Burgess, from uh, who who'd worked. With, well, he was in a band called Landscape, he was, and he produced Spandau Ballet and a few, Colonel Abraham's Living in a Box. So we were interested. You know, we asked. Uh, they said, "Who would you like to produce you?" And we asked for Richard, and uh, he produced three tracks, which I I think are as um, as strong as the promise. Wide, wide sea, heaven knows, and sight of your tears were the three tracks we recorded with Richard. Um, so, as far as tracking the, the success, we were actually back in the UK, and uh, all, all we could do was buy. I actually ordered Billboard on a weekly basis because it was that was a weekly publication. I don't know what what it is now, but then it was a weekly publication. It told you exactly what was going on in the US uh charts so I'd, I'd ordered that so my local news agent of course you had to order it because it was an american publication and they didn't have it in stock normally so i i'd ordered it so they'd get it every week for me and i'd, I'd track the the um the the progress of of the record and i could see it going up and saw it when it came as a new entry and and moving up the charts and stuff. Of course, it's really very, very exciting to see that. But you, but you don't really get what's from five thousand miles away. If you're just reading it, you don't really get um, 
exactly what's going on. Yeah, exactly. Makes sense. And uh, not much was digital back then. Clive, you mentioned it a little bit earlier. Um, at this point in time, are you guys sort of kind of contemplating um, and thinking of moving to America? Absolutely. All the time. All the time. And, and the, as, it's what we should have done. It, uh, it's weird because when we first came to America and I, uh, we stayed at the Hyatt and Sunset and I and Andrew, had, uh, my partner in the band, um, you know, he, he said, "Oh, I want to. I'd love to move to America. I'd love to." And I, I really didn't like it. I, I did, you know, where we were staying in that area of Sunset, I really, really didn't like it. You had to have a car. I like walking, and you can't really walk anywhere. You've got to have a car. Um, so I didn't really like it, and I didn't. I didn't realize there were beach places near Los Angeles. So, of course, uh, later on in life, it, it's weird the way it happened because I, it was me that ended up coming to live in America, and Andrew's still in London, still based in London. Um, the best move for when in Rome would have been for us all to move out there. Unfortunately, we had our thing where we, uh, we, of course, we we had to we let Mike go because um, we just weren't getting on anymore. Mike became like a brother to me, and it was you know like brothers. We had that brotherly thing going on where we we kind of getting on each other's nerves. That after a while, and we decided to uh, call it a day and uh, carry on. On just Andrew and I carried on. Gotcha. But before we get to that point in the story, Clive, where you guys kind of go your own way, um, at least with your keyboard player, still got questions about the song. Okay, so let me try to understand this. The song is obviously gaining traction. We've talked about that earlier. What's the label telling you? I mean, are you traveling back and forth from the UK to America? Are you guys touring? What exactly is taking place as this song is continuing to gain steam? Well, we did. What we did was we did a whirlwind tour of America. It it was just like, I mean, I can't even remember the places that we played. It was so, so fast the way it happened. Um, this This is exactly the way it happened. We were managed by a guy called Alan Mark who managed Jonathan Ross. Jonathan Ross is like our, um, like I, I'm trying to think of Johnny Carson would be the equivalent of Jonathan Ross in the UK. Jonathan Ross is a chat show host and he also presents awards. He, he does the BAFTA awards like the Oscars, the equivalent to the Oscars and everything else. He's a very, very big, but at the time Andrew was sharing a flat with him and it was before he'd done anything, you know, he, he, before he became successful. Uh, and he was managed by a, a guy called Alan Mark who also managed us. So um, we decided that because Jonathan Ross was blowing up, you know, he, he was becoming a big name and managed by Alan. We we had a meeting with Alan and said, listen, we realise you're really busy with Jonathan. Um, would you mind if we look for a new manager that could concentrate more on, on looking after us? And he said, I, and we, of course, we all agreed amicably. Everything was cool. So <clears throat> we contacted our record company, Company Virgin, <clears throat> and we went for a meeting on Portobello Road in London. They'd found a guy called uh, Paul King, who was managing Tears for Fears in America. He was looking after Tears for Fears, everything to do with Tears for Fears in America and Johnny Hates Jazz, or a, a, a few of the big 80s bands he was looking at. So he was known for looking after British bands who were successful in America or looking after their career as far as America's concerned. So we went to our record company, we had a meeting with Paul. He says, come and meet me in my office tomorrow uh, we went to meet him in his office in Soho, beautiful offices in Soho. We sat down in a re- He says, who would you like to... The, um, the Virgin are asking for more records for the album. They know they've got the promise. 
um, uh, they want more songs for the album. Who would you like to produce? We, we want at least three more songs. Who would you like to produce you? So I said Richard Burgess straight away. So uh, the other guys agreed. And so Paul King phones, gets on the phone straight away. He says, ah, Richard, how are you doing? What are you up to? He says, I'm, I'm working with Living in a Box at the moment on their album. I'll be finished in about six weeks, blah, blah, blah. He says, well, I've got one in Rome in the office, but they would like you to produce them. He says, right, yeah, I'm into it. Give us six weeks uh, and um, I'll be on it. So um, he says, right, no, let's not wait for six weeks. He says, we'll get you out. We were signed to Virgin Records, who actually owned the airline at the time as well. So he says, let's get you out to America tomorrow and get you acclimatized to the American way of life. And, um, uh, you, you know, acclimate before you start recording with Richard. So we actually flew out pretty much the next day. Um, and we were in America for six weeks prior to the recording. So we were kind of getting, uh, getting to know Hollywood and everything else and doing the sightseeing bit and stuff. So, um, meeting the record company people, uh, doing a lot of promo and everything else. So, um, yeah, then, then of course, it, we do the tunes with Richard Burgess and it was, uh, yeah, it was just one of those things. It was a, of making our own luck again um, and being lucky as well, being, being managed by Alan Mark, who managed blah, blah, blah. And then the record company helped us get a new manager who then looked after us in America. He, I think without all of that, we, it might not have been a hit. Very cool story. Richard Burgess, pretty big name in the music industry. Um, obviously, he worked with you guys, uh, Spandau Ballet, Adamant, and even New Edition. Uh, Clive, there is a video for The Promise, over 70 million views on YouTube, by the way. Was the video forced? Uh, yes, of course it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, 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 um we we never made a video in our lives before, and um, yeah, and the reason why I asked that um, obviously is because the song is gaining a lot of traction back in the late '80s. MTV is pretty big. I got to imagine, right, that the label wants a video out, so the song is ahead of the video. The song's doing great, so therefore you got to get the video out, correct? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it was about. It was about, um, you know. Um, yeah, like you say, so there's no better word than that than forced. You know, I mean, we we were directed by a guy called Nick Willing, who'd given us the uh, the uh, storyboard and everything else. And uh, and but and, and as you know, we I I said because Andrew Andrew was brought into the band for the look. You know, I'm, I'm going to be very very honest with you. Back back in the day, he was had that Michael Hutchins look. He had the long hair and everything else. Um, and uh, I, I don't. I don't regret this, but I, I. I actually said to Andrew, you know, you're the front man of the band. I, I'm quite a reluctant pop star. I like being in the studio and working. Um, I've become to. It, it only now, later on in life, have I started to love playing live and being on stage and stuff. Uh, but back in the day, I was pretty shy and I really didn't really want to be up in front of the camera and. Uh, I, I like being back in the studio and stuff, but so I, I decided, I says, Andrew, you sing the, you sing all of the verses, blah, blah, blah. And so, so of course on the video, Andrew sings my first verse. Um, and, and that, I think that's, uh, that was my fault. That was my, I, I made that. I read not, that's not my fault. It was a decision that I made. I didn't really want to be uh, part of the video really, but, um, it ended up that Andrew was singing the whole of the the, the tune 
uh, and I'd sang it originally in the in the recording studio, if you like. But as you say, yeah, the, the video is definitely forced, and you can see it. You, you know, it, 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 it's so so obvious that it was kind of thrown upon us. Do you like it? Um, I, I can't. I, I can't say I can watch it all the way through. It's. Um, I'd, I'd prefer Heaven Knows. I like the Heaven Knows one better because I think we were having fun in Miami. The, the Heaven Knows one was shot in Miami, and it, it kind of. Uh, it was fun, but um, yeah, the, the storyboard for me and the promise didn't quite match what the song was about. Yeah, having those looks like it would have been a fun video to shoot. Uh, kind of got some of that uh, homemade video camcorder type stuff going on. A cool video, Clive. Where was the promise shot? It was shot in a place in Hertfordshire, and I can't even remember. They'd hired a, a, a manor house, a really big house in Hertfordshire for the weekend. And we had uh, we um, we found a model to uh, to take the um, and it's weird because I never even said hello to the model. I, you know, because I was so shy at the time. You know, it was like um, rec- the um, record company and the the, uh, the video director Nick Willing had, had written the storyline and hired a model to play the girl part in the movie. It was just like a it was made like a proper movie, if you like. We didn't really know. Um, know the girl that played that part and uh, I didn't say hello to her I was not really introduced to her properly she just played the part and off she went home Um, and uh, I'd love to be able to say hello to her now and I'd I'd love to know I I don't even know her name wow that's pretty interesting yeah how long did it take to shoot Um, it was a weekend it was a full weekend shoot yeah no expense spared it was in the days of the hundred thousand dollar videos you know I mean that's got to have cost at least eighty thousand, I think. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. That was going to be my next question. If you uh, if you knew what the budget was for the video, I think it was around eighty something around there, and hence the reason why we've not recouped yet. You know, we probably we've not started making much money now because we spent so much money. Uh, the, the actual album cost three hundred thousand uh, to make. Wow, Clive, why and how did that cost? Three hundred thousand dollars to make because we were all over the place. We not, not I can't say all over the place. We were lucky. We were lucky. We we enjoyed it. You know, the money that we spent was well worth it for us, if you like. Maybe not as much worth it for the record company, but for us, it was great because we were recording at Power Plant, where Sade had just recorded uh, her album Diamond uh, Diamond Life. I think the album's called. Uh, she'd just recorded there, and hence the reason why we got Ben Rogan to produce it because Ben was the engineer on that record. Um, we wanted Robin Miller, who produced Diamond Life, because we love the sound of that. If you listen to that album now, it sounds great. Uh, we wanted Robin Miller to produce us, uh, but he wasn't available. He'd gone on to produce Joe Boxers and other other successful acts. So we got Ben Rogan, who was the engineer on Diamond Life, to produce us uh, at Power Plant in London. Um, then we decided once we'd got the instrumentation down, uh, and of course we we're not from London, so we'd, we'd record in it this studio in London. So we were being put up in a hotel, me and Mike sharing a room in a hotel. And um, so uh, then we decided after we put all the instrumentation down that we wanted a bit of a change of atmosphere. So we went to a place called Linford Manor, which was a residential studio. And uh, and so they sent cars to the, uh, to the, to our hotels to take us to this place Linford Manor in Milton Keynes. Uh, I was the first there, so I got the jacuzzi room and everything else. So it was uh, <laughs> <That's great. laughs> brilliant. So we were, and we were eating, and, the, and it was brilliant because it was like an old farmhouse that had been converted into the beautiful studio. So we did all the vocals there, 
Uh, we'd go down for breakfast and it was one of these really big old wooden tables where you'd have your breakfast and your dinner and uh, they had a pool room and a playroom and all sorts of stuff. It's lovely. Uh, so we did the vocals there. Um, and then we did some mastering in Townhouse in London. And then when we, the record, could decide, record company decided we needed three more songs, we then went with Richard Burgess. To re we did pre-production at his home in Hollywood and then did the recording at a place called uh, Ground Control in Santa Monica on Santa Monica Boulevard. So three, the three songs, Wide Wide Sea, Heaven Knows, Satya Tears were recorded in America. Another fantastic story. You guys were living that uh, rock star lifestyle. Uh, Clive, you mentioned Sade. I'm a big Sade fan myself. I actually have the Diamond Life CD, fantastic CD. Uh, smooth operators on that. Of course, your love is king. Always been a big Sade fan. Clive, do you have any idea what type of play and what type of rotation the video for The Promise was getting on MTV. I'm sure it was one of the MTV uh, on rotation at MTV. A lot of people have said that they, they've seen it many, many times on MTV. It was in, when it was released, it was on quite a big rotation. And I think at that point, when you asked about the video, I think we could have done a much better video to it. And I think if it had been, um, I, I, I shouldn't really say that the video's done. It's done, and, and I can't. We, you can't do anything about it. But I think, on hindsight, if we if we'd have made a uh, video that was more, um, you know, when the, the videos out at the time was, of course, the, the first one that was played was Buggles' uh, video killed the radio star, and the video for that is just fantastic. Aha, take on me, the one with the drawings and stuff. You know, they're, they're really, really clever, clever videos, and I think. What we're, like I like you said, I think because ours was forced, there was nothing. There was the words not clever. I think the word is um, it, it could have been a little bit more, given the audience something more to think about, if you like, rather than uh, it's just two, three guys just playing the role on on screen. So if there had been something more in the storyline where it was a little bit quirky and, and people were asking questions about it. You know, the, the best videos for me is where you go, how the, how did they do that? You know, it's uh, Peter Gabriel videos, for instance, you know, back in the day, his, his videos were just so groundbreaking. And then you could see the, pe the people that were making them were, were, were kind of experimenting and, and, and stuff. And I think we could have done a bit more with the experimentation, which is weird because Andrew's best friend and his best man was Howard Greenall. She was one of the biggest directors, biggest video directors in the UK. He, he did George Michael Jesus to a child. He did uh, uh, Pet Shop Boys Go West, blah, blah, blah. But at the time, we didn't know him. If we'd have known Howard at the time, we would have definitely gone with Howard. But Nick was great. Nick Willing was great as well. I'm not putting him down. I think he did a great job with what he had. Yeah, Take On Me, an all-time classic video by AHA. Uh, Clive, did you have any say or any direction on how the video was going to be produced? Not really. No, we never had a hit record before. So we took it that everybody knew what they were doing and the director knew what he was doing. And the storyboard was written and we thought these people are professional at writing storyboards. So we, we, we let, the, let it go, you know. Gotcha. All right, Clive, here's something I want to talk about. All right, here we go. You mentioned it a little bit earlier. Uh, I want to circle back around to it now. So this can be a bit confusing. So in the video, for the promise, the opening line, if you need a friend, okay, so the video shows Andrew Mann singing that line, but that's actually you, correct? Yeah, 
that, that's that's me. If if you need a friend, yeah, that's me. Well, one thing's for sure, you certainly sound better than me singing it. Um, <laughs> so explain this to me, Clive. How would that work when you guys would play live? Yeah, I mean, it was weird when we went on tour to Brazil. You know, we went on tour to Brazil, and of course, live. You know, anybody could tell that if if Andrew sang that first verse, it wouldn't sound like the single. Uh, so I, I, of course, I sang it live, and uh, people said, "Wait, wait a minute." I take it. I, I really take it. I think it's a, it, it's become a little bit like a quirky talking point, really, because it makes the, it, it makes the for me, it makes the video interesting again now. You know, it's kind of been made interesting because it, it makes people ask the question, "Wait a minute." That voice doesn't sound quite like it suits that thing, and I think it, I I would it, remember that it's done intentionally. So my argument would be because it's done intentionally, that's the way it's meant to be, and it, it makes people ask the question: Wait a minute, does that voice quite suit what we know of Andrew's voice? I mean, Andrew's got a fantastic, fantastic voice. Weirdly enough, Andrew and Andrew's got a great voice on his own, but it becomes even better. Mine as well. I would say this for me as well. When we sing together, it's a whole new thing. You know, it's a it, it, our, my voice becomes better, his voice becomes better. Um, but when we sing separately, it's not quite as as good. So it's uh, we have this uh, really really good thing, and I think all all the new songs that we're writing now involve the both of us singing right from the begin, right from the off, which is uh, which is what I think we should have done with that because of the juxtaposition between me and Andrew, the, the, the two different looks, if you like, the guy with the long hair and the guy with no hair, it, it, it has a bit of a juxtaposition about it. It's, um, and I think that if we'd have done that with the promise and had both of us up on the screen singing that first verse, then it probably would have been a, a better, uh, a better pro- a prospect, if you like. But I think it's a great talking point that, that, uh, that he sang that first verse. And it was me that, that said, yeah, let, let's do it that way. You know, That's fantastic. Love it. So what verse does Andrew sing? Oh, he sings the second verse, which is exactly what how we wrote all the other songs. So he, he sings the verse that he wrote. So it's when your day is through and so is your temper. You know what to do, blah, blah, blah. That's, that's his uh, whole line that, that that second verse so the the but i come in on that as well so he he opens with uh when your day is through that's his voice and then i come in with the next uh harmony on the on the rest of that verse um and that's the way we did all the other songs but I, on hindsight i wish we like i said I, I wish we'd have gone right from the off and we'd done a dual vocal all the way through the verses and the choruses yeah man i guess hindsight can always be 2020 So, Clive, we've talked about it. The Promise goes to number 11 on the Billboard Top 40. It's a big hit. After that, man, tell me what happens. What kind of went astray or what goes wrong to where you guys aren't able to repeat the success of The Promise? Well, we lost the record deal in... um, We were signed to the UK, remember, but in America, we were being looked after by Virgin America. They paid for us to go after the release of the first album or as it was released. Of course, record companies acting, uh, they they do stuff well in advance of what's going to happen next. So as we'd finished that second album, they automatically sent us to this place called Ledbury Muse or, or hired this place called Ledbury Muse in London, in Notting Hill in London, uh, to write our second album. Um 
so we write we wrote loads of chips beautiful place it's beautiful place it was like a muse house with wooden floors it had a jukebox in it we sampled the jukebox going and on and off for a rhythm and all sorts of stuff we so we wrote a lot of uh ideas uh for the second album in in there and and of course then <clears throat> the promise was obviously be, or becoming a hit or was already a hit when we were writing for the second album and we had the, the the same problem that most bands have. And unfortunately, I invited a friend of mine over um, who was living in London, who was from where I'm from in, in Altrincham. And he invited him over one night to have a drink. And uh, we were still writing. And he jumped on the keyboards and started playing stuff. And then we had a drink and he went home and blah, blah, blah. We get a call from the record company a few days after that. And he said, we've just received a phone call from one of your friends. Uh, he says he's written all your stuff for your second album. Oh, man. Here we go. It never seems to fail. <laughs> so we then get into some kind of, a, a, you know, the record company are then thinking, wait a minute, we're now into some kind of legal thing here. And unfortunately, it transpired up that lots of things happened. We, you, you know, that Andrew was getting frustrated with the record company because they weren't doing as much as America were doing. You know, Virgin America were doing it all. As I said before, as luck would have it, the record was going off on its own. It really wasn't the record company that was pushing it. It was a radio station, Live 105 in San Francisco, who really started the ball rolling. Record company really didn't need to do anything. It was, you know, it was becoming a hit on its own. Um, but in the UK, it needed a bit of an extra push. And unfortunately, uh, you know, Andrew took it upon himself to go to the record company and start asking questions, if you like. So I think the record company got a little bit pissed off with that and uh, we, we um, eventually lost the deal. And then there was this like legal stuff that might have happened. Record company kind of washed their hands with us and said, uh, you know, that's, you know, really, you know, we're not going any further, blah, blah, blah. We, the, the song's not a hit in the UK. So, so because we lost the record deal in the UK, even though the record was or had been a hit, in America, we lost the deal. So we lost the worldwide deal with Virgin, if you like. But they still own the stuff, of course. They still own the recording. They still own, own we, you know, they own the, the, the actual recording in perpetuity, as they call it. So for the, the Universal Records own it now. Um, and hence the fact, I mean, if we want to try and do remixes, it's such a nightmare to try and get hold of the original masters. We know where they are, but it's actually getting the people to release them to actually do remixes that's a it's a real big problem really uni yeah universal then have to they're, they're at Abbey road in london universal have to send a letter to them and they have to send a letter about and then there's all this legal stuff to release the masters and so um uh we were not no longer in the deal then in night so this was around 1990 we it was two two years after we'd had the the hit record so two years after the hit record we lost the record deal uh, we we started to get pissed off with each other, if you like, and we decided to let Mike go, and Andrew and I decided uh, to to go on our own. And then 1992, we were requested to go to Brazil on tour. We'd not toured Brazil before, but the record was big in Brazil. It become a, I think it went number one there in Brazil. Um, so Andrew and I were asked. Um, we we still knew people within the business. I was I, my girlfriend worked for EMI Records, so. I've, EMI became part of Virgin, so she still knew people within Virgin. Uh, and she came home one night, and she said that a lady from Virgin had asked her whether I was still active and whether what we wanted to do Brazil. And of course, we said yes, and we did all the 
negotiating with touring and everything else. So we went out to Brazil in 1992, me and Andrew, with a new keyboard player. And the first place we played was a 50,000-seater or standing only because in Brazil it was a bit like Mexico back in the 70s in, in, in Mexico they banned concerts because there was so much trouble and everything else uh, they did the same in Brazil you know young kids were going a little bit wild so they stopped it for a bit and I think we were one of the first bands to to go back after they'd uh, allowed pop bands to tour there again wow 50,000 was it sold out yeah the, the, it was pretty much full yeah wow yeah. and we, we and we had a dat player with our backing tracks on it i'd got a sanyo dat player uh and, and of course um we start the track rolling and it breaks down half well about a third of the way through the promise that the heat had got to the dat player oh man so i ran over to matt our keyboard player i said just give me the ca and the f and um he started playing it and I sang it live. So it was, if you need a friend to 50,000 people, and they just went went mad. And weirdly enough, there was 50,000 people for us to sing just, I think we did Heaven Knows and The Promise and maybe just one more song. I think it was three songs. And it was just us. We weren't supporting anybody. Wow, that's pretty crazy, Clive. Think about that, man. I mean, because obviously those people are there pretty much for one song, which is The Promise. And... The promise was 88. You guys go to Brazil in 92. So several years later, you know, I mean, between 88 and 92, let's just be honest, you guys don't do a whole lot, but you walk on to a stage of almost 50,000 people. That's insane, man. Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. And and until you're there, until you're there, there's no way of knowing what that's like until you're there. But I guess it's like playing football. I mean, I grew up in Manchester, where Manchester United, you know, Manchester, when you go to the Theatre of Dreams, Old Trafford, to watch a football match, there's 75,000 people there to watch 11 uh, or 22 players on a, on a football field, you know, and it's, it's pretty, I guess it's uh, the same kind of feeling for any player that's playing for any one of those teams, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's it's massive. It's a it's a it's a massive honour to have people there. That of course you know, we did the apprenticeship in the working men's club, where people we were actually playing in front of people that may not have well, they definitely have not paid to come and see us. They'd paid, they'd not even paid a door fee. They were they they made money on the, the 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 drinks and stuff like that. They'd come to just have a good night and probably play cards and bingo and everything else. Um, uh, to get to a stage where the people that are, that are there have paid to see you. It's a little, a very, very different situation because you know that those people have paid, and you, of course, you've got to give. But like any a football, any sports person, they've got to give. Uh, you, you've got to give the best you can. And, and and running up to that show in Brazil, I did a lot of uh, groundwork in getting the backing traps tracks together and making sure everybody was rehearsed properly so that we did the the best that we could. Um, and it, yeah, it worked out really, really well. Yeah, man, I would say so. That is really cool. So explain to me how this works, Clive, because I don't exactly know. So you guys are signed to Electra at first. Uh, you go to Virgin. Virgin eventually drops you. So now what, right? You have this song out, The Promise. So are there record labels across the world going, wow, you know what? When in Rome, the guys that sing The Promise are available. They're no longer signed to Virgin. Let's go out 
and sign these guys. How does that process work? Yeah, well, that's exactly what happened with Electra. You see, it happened once. So I think when it happens once, it's, you know, you're kind of pushing your luck a little bit that another record company is going to come in. And all record companies talk to each other. All the A&R guys that hung out at this place that I mentioned earlier called Groucho's in London, all those A&R guys from all the different labels knew each other. They knew what, they all knew which bands they were looking at at the time, which bands were that they thought that were going to be the next big thing. They all knew. And it was up to whichever one was going to take the chance to sign them. They all knew that they we were kind of, uh, I, I guess the word is old, all the words are old news. You know, we'd already signed to Electra. We then went to sign to Virgin. So for us to get a third one would have been a real, real, real feat. And uh, even with the success, you know, and they're looking at it in the long term as well, you know, with, with the Brit, I mean, of course, we're lucky that, that I guess you could say that the song The Promise. It, uh, as a recorded record is bigger than of course bigger than our album sure and, and bigger than anything that we ever recorded on it so a record a record company taking a chance just on one record is very 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 slim you know they, they're looking at the long term they're looking at really big books it's a bit like shark tank in it really you're taking you're taking one item of things in front of people that want to sell your stuff and they're thinking wait a minute you've only just got one thing there you, you know we've got to pay you we've got to pay blah 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 and by the time we've done all that we're not making anything um gotcha yeah that makes sense so what do you do well well to, i so of course we got no deal in 92 i then start working with loads of different uh i was i started working with john mcgeoch in 95 i worked on loads of different projects i were producing bands um working with other bands i worked with a band called underground circus in london who i produced and uh another band i can't think of the name but i produced a few but and i did a remix for a guy called johnny diesel uh and an australian very very big in australia didn't really quite hit it big in uh the uk or america um so i was producing him then i met uh weirdly enough this is how i met john lydon johnny rotten and john McGeoch, who was working with him in uh, with him in Public Image Limited, when we were recording the album uh, in Power Plan, Andrew went out for the night because Andrew really didn't like this. He'll tell you himself, he's not a technical guy. He'd come into the studio and put vocals down, and then we'd say, "Listen, you know, we don't, you don't need to be hanging around in the studio while we're uh, programming and everything else." Uh, so he'd go out and and, and um, go out with you know his friends and everything else, and. The, one night he'd met, because uh, he, he was hanging around with the crowd, Def Leppard crowd, um, Joe Elliott and, um, and McGeoch from Public Image Limited and John Lydon. So they'd go out wherever they went in London, this place where they all hang out. Uh, Andrew came back one night to the studio and brought John Lydon and um, John McGeoch back to the studio. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, that's John L that's Johnny Rotten from, and I was, I was blown away. Um, so I got talking with John McGeoch, the guitarist, um, and I, th I don't know whether he was, he was obviously not quite happy with public image at the, at the time and he was looking at other projects. I can't say that because I didn't know what his mindset, he might have been happy with them, but he was looking for another project as well. So he, he says, uh, he gave me his number, I took his number and uh, eventually we contacted each other and we started working on a project called Pacific with John Keeble on drums from Spandau Ballet. Um, we had John, uh, Glenn Gregory from Heaven 17 uh, as dual vocalist singing with me and a guy called Keith Lowndes uh, who was doing a lot of the programming and everything else. So we formed a band called Pacific 
um, and we wrote a lot of load of tunes with uh, with them. So it, it was great. That was great experience because when you think of John McGeer, uh, he worked with Susie and the Banshees, Public Image Limited, um, The Armoury Show, um, lots of other bands. Oh, uh, Magazine was his first band. That's how I knew him. Um, so um, uh, that experience was fantastic. Um, so, but then, so is music from Pacific out there? Is it available? Yeah, well, no, it's not, it's, it's actually not out there. I've actually got the demos, and I'm, I'm threatening to uh, release them very, very soon. Re- I've actually remastered them through. I've, done, I've, I've remastered them in Logic and stuff. So, um, I, they, they they really do sound good. The songs are, are very, very good, and uh, it, it was one of those things. We were obviously trying to get a record deal with Pacific, and um, I think John was known as quite a, a bit of a bad boy in music, if you like, and, uh, they, they, and uh, record companies were afraid of. And, of course, record companies are after the next big thing, the next bright young thing, and uh, trying to sign a band that had already been successful. Well, John had already been in, successful in many other bands, and uh, I think there was no record company wanted to take the chance on us, so unfortunately that didn't work. And uh, God rest his soul, he's no longer with us, but uh, had a great time uh, working with him. Uh, so uh that was around 94 95 um so then working with loads of people all the way up to 1999 so i'd not remember of no record deal i've got no money coming in i'm trying to make ends meet uh doing little odd jobs to make money uh what type of work were you doing oh all sorts of stuff um driving more than anything because that was obviously easy and it was that easy to get out of if you needed to if you, you needed to to hop on the the music thing again, just in case, you know. So um, I was driving delivery stuff and all sorts of stuff. Um, and then um, my daughter was born in 1999. Uh, so I thought to myself, I've got to get a proper job now, you know, get to look after her. Um, so I, I saw an advert for a, it was an AV technician, audio visual technician at a hotel looking after the events and stuff. Uh, and it was at Radisson SAS Hotel at Manchester Airport. So I, um, got the job there and became event technology manager there for a company called an American company called PSAV. Um, so I joined them in 2001 and I stayed with them until 2010 and got headhunted by a studio. I actually then went to a studio. I oversaw the build of a brand new studio in South Manchester called CRS Studios. Uh, what was it called? I'll forget now. Is it past? Um, but I left. Uh, th- it was weird at the hotel because in 2003, I get a phone call while I'm working at the hotel and it's our ex-keyboard player, uh, Mike, or Mike, our keyboard player, um, calls me at the hotel and he says, uh, we have interest in the promise for a movie um, called Napoleon Dynamite. And I didn't know at the time how big this movie was going to be or what what, I, what it was all about. Um, so throughout 2003, we were negotiating it was like every other day i'd speak to mike in america because by this time he'd moved to dallas in texas um we were negotiating the deal with napoleon dynamite we knew being five thousand miles away we knew nothing about what was going on until i was watching mtv awards in bed at about one o'clock in the morning and daryl hannah comes running up onto the stage and she says i'm forgive me i'm shouting for napoleon dynamite so i thought uh, you know, if Daryl Hannah's shouting for Napoleon Dynamite, it's got some kind of a chance and, our, and they've used our song in it. And of course, the rest is history. It becomes a, a massive success. It becomes a, a cult movie. Um, 
MTV Film of the Year, uh, Sundance Film of the Year, it, it, and it breaks a few records and um, it gets released in 2004. And I never hear from our keyboard player again. So unfortunately, he forms a band over here and creates a band and, and we don't know because we're four, 5,000 miles away. So in 2010, I'm still at the hotel. So the film's been released six years and I'm still at the hotel. And there's people at the hotel, young people, and the hotels have uh, generally have young people working for them. And they're all coming to me. I watched that film last night, in, uh, Napoleon Dynamite, and your song's in it. Um, why, what are you doing working at the hotel? Why are you at the hotel? You know, you've got this successful song going off in America. Um, and you, you're still working at a hotel. And I says, I've got no clue what's going on. Nobody's asking us to go over there. Nobody. And it turns out that we, we, we obviously have a band called When in Rome touring here without the original founders uh, of the band, Andrew and myself. And uh, so they were kind of taking all the, the steam from uh, Napoleon Dynamite and, and running with it. Oh, man. Uh, without our knowledge. And uh, yeah. So we, I contacted the agent that was working for them at the time, and um, I said, by the way, you know, what's going on? Because the original writers and the original singers are over here. We do, you know, we've got a band touring over there that's calling themselves by our founded name. And we, you know, we obviously would like to, uh, to have a part in what's going on because we wrote the original tune and we are the original founders, blah, blah, blah. And he, he said... I didn't know. He sent me an email back. He said, well, I really, he says, I was told that you'd retired. You didn't want to do it anymore. You couldn't sing. Blah, blah, blah. And we were kind of rubbished by, um, by our ex keyboard player. If you like, he'd sent a letter to live nation and uh, said that how bad we were and how bad we were to get along with. And Damn. we couldn't sing. We chose to mime on the first tours, blah, blah, blah. And, so we kind of had our, our name rubbished in the, in, the, in the dirt, if you like. So um, the, the agent that was working for them said, I had, had no idea that you, want, you wanted to do this because I was told that you didn't and you'd retired and you didn't want anything to do with the music business. It was, it's been my dream for my life to, to be successful in music. And I obviously had to get a proper job to make ends meet, which I loved. I loved being there and working for uh, the hotel. But... There was something else out there, you know. It was, I guess, my baby was being uh, paraded around America without the original guys being involved with it. And uh, the agent said, "Right," he says, "Let's get something sorted out." I was actually working at a hotel. Then I'd been headhunted by a, a, a studio and headhunted from the hotel into this studio to oversee the build. So that was 2010. So um, I decided to leave in 2011. I did all negotiating through 2010 to come back out uh, as as when in Rome. We came out as when in Rome, and of course, uh, we got into. We, we came out in 2011. We met this agent who was also their drummer and became then our drummer and our agent. Um, and we started to do tours. And unfortunately, our ex keyboard player had. Um, had contacted a lot of venues that we were about to play and had a lot of gigs cancelled, threatening to sue them and everything else. So um, uh, it, it took us, a, it was a bit of an uphill climb because we were being stopped at every, every we called ourselves by our original name, of course. Um, somebody actually then alerted me to the fact that somebody had actually applied for the trademark for When in Rome. So I went on to the I suppose that this, the site, the, the American trademark site, there I see it. I see the trademark application 
going forward. So Andrew and I opposed it as well. We actually paid money to oppose it. Uh, and for whatever reason, we'd given all the re- the you know the, we'd given all the reasons why we are opposing this trademark. We are the original founders. We are the writers of the biggest record. We are the singers of the biggest record that went in Rome. We've had. We gave them all of this criteria, but we got a letter back saying we've given it to. Uh, your ex keyboard player without prejudice. Wow. Without, and you know what? Without prejudice means that means that we cannot go for that trademark again. For and I, I still to this day don't know how that happened. Um, so right now we, of course, we can't call ourselves. We, then I went into a um, what's known as a well, it's where the the lawyers get together. My lawyers, our ex keyboard players' lawyers, we all get together in a room and we thrash it out. What what's going to you know? Obviously, I'm, I'm threatening to be. I'm being threatened to be sued. Andrew and I are being threatened to be sued for using the name "When in Rome." Yeah, that's awful, man. That is crappy. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so the original founders, the original writers, the original singers are being sued, right? Um, uh, by an ex-member, um, and uh, we go into. Uh, negotiation to there is a word for it i can't think of it but it's uh, where you sit down and decide what you want to do to sort it out banging your heads together as it were so it came to the point he wanted us to call ourselves for or his lawyer was asking for us to be called formally of clive farrington and andrew mann formally of when in rome uk you know it had to have the uk on it eventually we decided that he was going to be called when in rome 2 his version of the band when in rome 2 uh, and we were going to be called Far- or Clive Farrington and Andrew Mann, original members of When in Rome UK. And it had to have the UK on it. And it had to be, oh, the When in Rome UK had to be 50% smaller than the Farrington and Mann. So that was the way that they negotiated it. So it's very, very difficult. So what I've uh, I've decided to do now is because, of course, we're, we're, we're actually more successful now than we were back when we had the hit record because we, we now tour pretty much every year. So what we I've decided to do a complete complete name change. We're doing a name change. So it's going from When in Rome to Farrington and Man, and that's it, just as short as that. And that was the reason why, I don't know whether you've seen that, we've, we've had some custom guitars built, and uh, I've done one to com- commemorate the, uh, the 35 years of When in Rome, and I've done one guitar to commemorate the name change. So it kind of uh, it's a it's a definite borderline to say right this is where we're going to go. We were when in Rome. We are now Farrington and Man um, because people do get confused with uh, especially because they've had three singers. When in Rome, two have had three singers. Uh, they've got, they've now got a guy that was um, was in Ultravox after Mid Your. Um, um, so um, you know it's uh, it's it's very very difficult to get because people go to see that band expecting to see the original uh the guys and it's it's quite confusing um more than anything um yeah very confusing and uh quite unfair and quite ridiculous yeah and i I think it's happened with a lot of bands where a bass player or a keyboard player that was you know that that, that played a role in the band that wasn't the front person or or it's it, it kind of always is a person that's kind of you know, without any, you know, without sounding like this is sour grapes or anything like that. But, you know, having talked to many, many lawyers, it's all about somebody that was not quite as significant as the front people and the writers of the song that was, uh, that causes the problem. As <laughs> Yeah, that's crappy, man. And uh, I knew there was legal issues and I was going to ask you about them, Clive, but uh, 
Yeah. I mean, no need to ask any more questions about that. I'm sure there's more of a story behind it, but I certainly appreciate the explanation. Let me ask you this, the whole Napoleon Dynamite thing in 2004. Tell me how that comes to be. Also, who negotiates that deal for you? Are you negotiating that money or do you have lawyers who are negotiating that for you? It was my, it was our, it was my car, um, our ex-keyboard player. He, he actually called me in 2000 because he was living in Dallas, Texas. And of course they took the easy route and uh, uh, contacted him directly. Obviously they were looking for using the song. Weirdly enough, um, I'm the only person within when in Rome set up that's met all of the people from the film. And I got the chance to ask Jared Hess, the director, why he chose to use the film, the song in the film. And he, he says, if he'd not used the song, his wife would have murdered him. You know, it was his, it's, it's, it's his songs, uh, it's his wife's favorite song. Um, so I, I, I've actually met all the people involved with the movie. I've met all the actors and everything else. Um, but it was Mike that actually did the first initial negotiations and he was calling me throughout 2003 and as i said after the negotiations in 2003 in 2004 when the film was released i didn't hear from him again because he'd formed a band to kind of make hay while that the, the sun shined if you like gotcha cool story about the uh the director's wife that's awesome so was the money fair oh we all yeah we did we all we all did. it was a fair deal as far as that was concerned we, it was a third it was a third share of uh, residuals and everything else on that. Uh, of course, that that movie makes us more money than anything else, um, you know, because we still get residuals every time it's played and and stuff. Not a millionaire yet by any chance, but um, it's uh, it, um, it, it it the film has really really kicked the promise into somewhere where we thought it was never going to go. Wow, that's really cool, huh, man? Yeah. Congratulations on that. Clive, are the residuals enough from Napoleon Dynamite that you can live off of that money? Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, we're now in a doubt. Of course, I'm not doing anything right now because apart from music, you know, I've got, I'm, I'm, I'm in the studio most times. I'm actually doing DJ stuff. I'm doing a radio show, all sorts of stuff. Obviously, that's not making me any money. But yes, that keeps me to, that that allows me to pay my rent and 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 have a car and everything else and uh, yeah it was uh, it, it we've been very very lucky especially with the film I I think if the film hadn't been released then I'd still be in Manchester and I'd still be in a job amazing very very cool um, Clive when in Rome considered synth pop. Would that be a good way to uh, define you guys? I, I, as far as I would, I'm concerned, I'd say it was we were synth pop, but because there was three people in the band and we were all had different tastes. I mean, for instance, Andrew was into the Doors and that kind of stuff. Um, Mike was into Crowded House and more of that, uh, you know, like AOR. I could, I would think that would be classed under adult orientated rock. Um, and I was more into the I was more into Heaven Seventeen, Kraftwerk, and uh, more, more, more electronic. Heaven Seventeen, Human League, um, all of the electronic bands, Landscape, um, Daff. You know, uh, I was more of that. And I, as far as the albums concerned, that's why it sounds so different. All the songs are so eclectic, as it were. It was, um, the, of course, the opening track, The Promise. With, I'd say with that was more towards my 
sound if you like because i program the drums on that and i program the bass on that um so that 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 was my thing and i guess you know people have said that it's a carbon copy of new orders blue monday and stuff you know or or it's a carbon copy of the new order sound and i guess we were influenced a lot but i i was definitely influenced by new order because we used to go to the hacienda and they used to play a a lot well, of course, they own the place. New Order owned the Hacienda, so they had all their stuff playing. So um, I, I was very influenced by that sound, especially the the, 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 the quick drum kicks and stuff like that. So the, the Promise was more of my influence, I would say, uh, and the rest of the tracks had some of my influences in, but we went more. We were very, very diplomatic as far as we were going to sound. Uh, we had Preston Heyman on drums for all of the other tracks. The Promise didn't have Preston Heyman. He- Preston Heyman is... Kate Bushy's drummer. So we, uh, Ben, our producer, knew of him because he'd worked with him. So he recommended him for the other tracks. So all of the other tracks uh, had Preston Heyman playing drums. The Promise had my drum programming. Yeah, because The Promise is a drum machine, right? Drum machine, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it the 808? No, it's a Lin, Lin drum. The 808 was around at the same time. We actually programmed, I, I programmed it originally on uh, Dr. Rhythm, on a uh, Roland Boss dr rhythm which was a tiny little drum machine uh the original and of course when we get to the to the uh recording stage and the record company says right what do you need uh you can hire anything you want we hired a lindrum which was the machine all of the big tunes that you hear all the big 80 tunes you spin me around like a record all the uh, you know dead or alive all those tunes have the lindrum on it the, uh, the lind sound and hence, hence the promise became it has that kind of a sound about it but the rest of the tracks we, we were very very diplomatic in the way they went so we went with the, what, what andrew wanted to hear and we went with what mike wanted to hear and uh, uh that that's probably uh, it was probably a mistake well, can't be a mistake because i don't think it would have happened any other way if i'd have said i want all of the tracks to sound like the promise i don't think it would have happened uh we, we were just very very diplomatic in the way that we uh, we allowed each other to have our own uh, thoughts and stuff on the on the sound. That's very cool. It's not often that you hear bands being diplomatic with one another. Uh, Clive, let's fast forward to 2016. There's a uh, a band out there that I really like. Name of the band is FM84. You hook up with those guys, uh, Colin Bennett from FM84, and I tell you what, man, you guys put together a beautiful song. I love it, man. The name of the song is Goodbye. Tell me about the collaboration with FM84 and how that came to be. Yeah, um, Colin contacted me over, um, we, we became friends over Facebook. And, you know, I'm not, I, I'm quite, a li- I, I like Facebook for that kind of read. You know, for, you know, of course, if you, if you avoid all the bullshit that goes with Facebook, it's a really great communication tool. So I, Colin from fm84 contacts me and uh, we we arrange for him to come and stay he stays at a hotel just up the road i go and meet him from the airport uh make sure he gets sorted out in his hotel and then we go to my little home studio which was a, i had a little studio apartment with the studio inside there and um he came over and we just started working i think he had the did he had, I'm, I'm trying to think of whether he must have had the backing track pretty much i think he did he had the the, the idea for the backing track pretty much sorted so he played me the backing track and I automatically started to sing that that melody, uh, the one that was actually finally used. So um, 
course, Colin goes, yeah, that's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So uh, then we honed the lyrics and I start to write. And it, it conjured up to me, because uh, uh, I've been to Ibiza a few times. Ibiza is, a, I don't know whether you know about Ibiza in Spain, but it's the UK centre for dance music, for electronic dance music, for uh, for chill out music, for, for, for modern electronic music. It, uh, all have or used to that Ibiza was the place to be, the island, uh, and and for for whatever reason, this tune conjured up all of that stuff. Um, and weirdly enough, I don't know whether you know this, but it was released on Cafe Del Mar, which is, is an Ibiza. It's a Spanish label, Cafe Del Mar, and it's actually based in Ibiza. And they have their own club called Cafe Del Mar, and they play very chill out music, like like Goodbye. So it's actually really released on Cafe Del Mar Volume Twenty Two, which was for me that was the that was the pinnacle of uh, of recording with Cole on that track. Was that it was used where it was actually supposed to be used? Because as soon as he played it to me, it conjured up ideas of Ibiza and beautiful golden beaches and sunshine, and um, it's, so that that that's what the whole thing is. It's written about a love affair in Ibiza, really. Very cool, and yeah, I am familiar with uh, Cafe Del Mar. I'm also familiar with the fact that. Ibiza is kind of known as that hub for electronic music, or at least it used to be, as you said. Uh, I like the backstory to the song, Clive. Who wrote the song? Uh, I wrote the lyrics. Of course, um, Colin helped me shape things and maybe said, you know, I, I don't like that lyric. How, can you do something else there? It took us a, a while to just formulate exactly, because there were lines that I sang that were not used in the in the final one that, 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 that Colin said, well, can you think of something else there? And I'd, I'd then reshape it and put a new lyric in there. Um, but I'm, I think it's one of, for me, it's, a, it, it, it's a, lyrically, I think it's my proudest moment as far as, uh, you know, the, the, the meaning of the lyrics if you know what I mean, because sometimes you can force. When you said about forced video, that was that was a song that was definitely not forced. It was it was uh, as soon as he played it. To, I'm I'm very very lucky in that respect. If somebody plays me something really really good, I think of something really good. You know, it, 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 I automatically think of something really good. And most of those lyrics, and it was written pretty much like the the, the promise in that way. Most of the lyrics that you hear on this final version of goodbye were actually sung directly into you know when when colin had played me this tune so in that weekend that he stayed we actually completed the whole thing we recorded all the vocals he went back to san francisco where he lives uh and um mixed it and everything else and of course uh, the the sound is beautiful and the saxophone and everything yeah i agree man it's uh it's beautiful what do you think about the song i love it it's probably my favorite song that i've written of all time yeah that's really cool man and that says a lot obviously about your feelings towards that song uh on that track clive to me you sound like tony hadley oh wow from spandau ballet that sounds wow like it could be you know like a spandau ballet tony hadley song wow i mean great big influence of course and i've met him a few times and he's a lovely lovely fella and i've worked with spandau i know spandau really well i know steve norman i know tony hadley i know all the guys i've seen him a few times i've met him a few times um, and a massive influence, especially when we were at Bo Leisure, because Bo Leisure were kind of a, a new romantic band around at the same time as Spandau. We were kind of in that, that we were, we wanted to be the Manchester version of Spandau Ballet, if you like, in, in the band Bo Leisure. So I always held, held them as a, a massive influence, always listened to their records. And uh, of course, Tony Hadley's voice is the 
very hence the reason why really they can't go forward with another singer you know it's, it's, it's such a sad situation for them because of course this band politics that are going on with that don't allow for tony to be back in the band so they tried a new singer for a while it didn't work people that know spandau ballet and love spandau ballet will not put up with um with with anything other than the original band and unfortunately for whatever reason that's going on uh, they can't get their heads together and, uh, and and say come on you know let's go out on a tour and it, it and uh, you know and the sad thing about it it's probably all about you know and far be it from me to talk about it, but uh, you said the sad part is it's probably all about money and and and, and it shouldn't be it really really shouldn't be because you're not into it for that i was never into it for me money I'd, it, you know i see money as a bonus you know if I, if it, my rent's being paid. My car's being paid. That's a bonus to me, and uh, it, it, it's not that I want, you know. And I never ever thought, oh, that's it, you know, the, the rubbing the hands and stuff like that. Um, yeah, man, definitely a bit unfortunate, and I'm sure you're right. I'm sure it's all about the money, and that's been going on for quite a while, I believe, since 2015. Uh, Clive, I mentioned it to you earlier in the show. There's a few Manchester bands I want to ask you about. I want to get your opinion on them. All right. Yep. Here we go. The Smiths. Don't like them. Never liked them. <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it. Now, the, there's one song that I like of theirs, and it's How Soon Is Now. That's the, and it's because of the guitar. It's that guitar. That that uh, delay on the guitar is just the, the best. And uh, I, I was not really a fan of Morrissey's voice. Um, I just never really got on with that. Um, nice guys, probably, but uh, not really into the music. Nice guys. Hmm. Debatable. Johnny Marr and the rest of the guys, probably. Morrissey, that's another story. All right, here we go, Clive. Oasis. No. All right, well, that was pretty quick, too. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> gotcha. How about the Stone Roses? I love Stone Roses now because my daughter loves them, and I, I, I was not a fan of theirs when they were when they were first successful, and I knew Ian Brown. I know, I know of him. I've, I've met him a couple of times. He'd probably say he wouldn't know, know me, but I, I've met him a couple of times and through the studio that I was working at. Yeah, I like them, and they're from they're pretty much from where I'm from in Hale. They, they all went to Altrincham Grammar, which is where I was, but pretty much near where I was born. Very cool. You mentioned them a few times throughout the podcast. New Order. Their hit records, I like. Um, I, I can't say that I, I've never bought any of their records, and I've got to really say, yeah, I've got, yeah, I do like New Order because we were influenced by them, you know. But I didn't write buy any of their records, but I used to hear their records when I used to go to the Hacienda and stuff, and uh, they played them pretty much every other record, and there's even the, all the obscure tracks that they'd released. But uh, I didn't like them enough to uh, to go out and buy the records, if you like. All right, well, cool. So you're a no on the Smiths. You're a no on Oasis. You like the Stone Roses. You sound a little bit iffy on New Order. What groups from back in the 80s do you like? Human League, Heaven 17, Landscape, uh, Craftwork, Shriekback, Kissing the Pink, uh, English Electronica is, is where I was at. I mean, I remember buying Penthouse and Pavement by Heaven 17, and that really blew me away because it, it was, uh, you know, fascist groove thing and all that sort of stuff. It was really innovative. It was, it was so ahead of its time, you know. And uh, I guess that's why I like Landscape, and Landscape had Richard Burgess playing drums who then produced us, you know. It was like, uh, and that was the reason why it came to producers because I love the sound of their albums. Very cool. I could talk to you all day, Clive. I'm going to let you go soon, but man, I could talk to you all day and listen to your stories all day long. Um, tell the listeners around the world 
what you're up to today and what a typical day for you is like in Southern California. Um, being in the studio and working on uh, new tunes, um, uh, creating radio um, playlists. Like I have an hour on Reflex Radio every Sunday that's repeated. Uh, it's at 7 p.m. every Sunday um, in, in, I call it Pacific Standard Time, 7 p.m. every Sunday. Uh, I do a, a show called uh, the Reflex Radio Show. And I call it the uh, the songs that shaped the 80s. So it was kind of songs around the end of the 70s that were threatening to be big in the 80s or bands that influenced bands in the 80s. So I've, it, 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 it's all um, geared to, uh, around that. Very cool. I need to check it out. Where can people listen to it? So it's on Reflex Radio. So www.reflexradio.com. And it's uh, 7 p.m. Sundays, uh, California time. Uh, and 3 p.m. on a Tuesday, California time, and 3 p.m. Thursday, California time. I will definitely be checking that out. Clive, I'm going to hook up your social media uh, platforms on my webpage, but go ahead and give me your social media platforms and your web address. Uh, social media, Farrington and Man. Uh, search for Farrington and Man for Facebook. We have our own website, which is www.farrington-man. Com. Yeah, and that's M-A-N-N. And I like your webpage, Clive. You guys have your self-titled uh, debut album on there, When in Rome, uh, which obviously features the song The Promise. So the whole record is on there. So if people are out there listening and they want to check out the record, all they have to do is go to your webpage and they can listen to the entire thing, uh, which is really cool. Um, Instagram. Clive, do you guys have an Instagram? Uh, no, we don't, because um, it's only me really that looks after the Instagram, all of the social media stuff. So I kind of have to, uh, you know, concentrate on on just a couple of things because having all of that stuff going at the same. If I had somebody else to help me, then because uh, of course Andrew's in London and it's quite difficult for him to uh, to be involved with what's going on over here and stuff. So um, and he also has his own business over there as well that he's concentrating on. Um, so, um, yeah, so Instagram, maybe now that you've uh, mentioned it, I might have get something going this afternoon. Cool, man. Do it. I like Instagram. I prefer it myself over Facebook. Clive, we are almost done, man. I am going to let you get out of here before we go. Any final plugs, anything else out there, any new music you're working on, anything else you want to uh, let the world know about? This is your chance. Go for it. Well, you know, we've just released uh, a, a six track EP, if you like, um, cover designed by Howard Greenhalgh, who shot the Pet Shop Boys videos. Um, back cover designed by Jason DeBoard, who's another great photographer. And uh, it's on purple vinyl, 12 inch, and it's recorded with the Prague Philharmonic Orchestra, who also recorded with Wang Chung and Flock of Seagulls and blah, blah, blah. So um, we've just, um, it, that's, we, we've got 300 copies of that. It's a minimum run of three copies. 120 of them have already been bought for the Philippines market, because the, the promise was big in the Philippines. To, to cut a long story short, you can get hold of this if you go to our website. We have a shop on www.farrington-man.com. There's a shop on there, so you can go on there and you can see that the uh, six-track EP is on there. It's on 12-inch purple, heavy-duty vinyl, um, and it's recorded with the Prague Philharmonic Orchestra. Uh, but the nice surprise about that was that, and I don't know whether they did it with the other bands, but... Um, the reason why there's six on six tracks on there is I've done a mix. I've done a dance mix, which doesn't have the orchestra on it. I've done a, a full-on dance mix of it. 
Um, of course, the major track is the one recorded with the Prague Philharmonic, which is exactly, it's a re-recording. It's not that we don't use anything from the original recording, we re-recorded it. I recorded my vocals here in California with the guys from Prague. Andrew had the guys from Prague visit him in London and he did the uh, vocals for his part in London. Uh, it was then sent over to Prague, all mixed up in Prague. Uh, and they, at the same time as having the orchestra mixes done, they had some uh, DJ, some successful DJs that they knew out in Italy um, do some remixes as well. So, so there's some really, really nice surprises on there as far as, as mixes are concerned. There's a funky mix, there's a disco mix, um, got a Promise uh, 30th anniversary t-shirt on there. and um, Yeah, so um, that's our latest, most exciting thing, but we're down to about 50 copies now. So we've sold about uh, 250 copies already of a 300 run. So we have 50 copies left and uh, is anybody out there that wants one, just go to our website and uh, you can order directly over PayPal. There you go. Get your hands on one before they are gone. Again, guys, all the merchandise can be found at farrington-man.com. Clive, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate you taking time out of your day to come on the podcast and to share all your stories with me and the entire world. They were absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Cliff. Thanks for having me on Being Famous Podcast. It's been a pleasure and I uh, hope we can do it again soon. Definitely. The pleasure was all mine. To everyone listening, Clive and I talked about this song earlier in the podcast. I mentioned how much I love it, so I am going to leave you with it. The name of the song is Goodbye by FM84 off of their album Atlas released in 2016 featuring the gentleman you just heard, Clive Farrington. Hope everyone enjoyed the podcast. Stay safe and I will talk to you on the next episode. Peace. Yeah.